Ever wondered who and what is shaping Luxembourg? This is your Lux Unplugged podcast with your hosts, Adrian and Thierry. Hi, I'm Adrian. And I'm Thierry. Welcome back to another episode of the Lux Unplugged podcast. It's nearly been two years since we recorded the first episode. Time flies. Time flies indeed. And yet here we are, still as excited as on day one. Adrian, who are we talking to this week? In this new episode, we're having a chat with Pascal Juncker, head of the recently launched body within the Ministry of the Economy called Luxembourg Strategy. The reason why we got Pascal on the show was to discuss her areas of expertise, such as climate action and sustainable urban planning. On this occasion, we won't talk about Luxembourg Strategy in particular, which will be subject to a different recording later on. What bits and pieces can you give away to our listeners? This couldn't be a more timely conversation, given the recent climate change events that the world has experienced in the past few weeks. Extreme heat waves in North America, flooding in Western Europe, Asia and the US, droughts in Brazil, and then the alarming IPCC report that came out in August. There are a lot of questions that listeners may have regarding the impact of humanity on climate change. In this deeply fascinating and intriguing conversation, we discuss Luxembourg's environmental impact and the challenges that the country will face in the future, not only from a climate change perspective, but also from a resources point of view. Indeed, Luxembourg holds a lot of records when it comes to using its resources. Hence, we also dive into the opportunities that Luxembourgers could seize to have a positive impact in the long term and how this can be translated into a territorial planning strategy. But now, without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Pascal Juncker, head of Luxembourg Strategy. Pascal Juncker, welcome to the show. Hello, good morning. It's an absolute pleasure to to have you here on the show. So before we kick off this uh, very multifaceted and and fascinating conversation of ours, I've got a very established uh, tradition here on this uh, on this podcast that we'd like to know who we're talking to and uh, for the benefit of our audience uh, for people who don't know you how would you introduce yourself maybe i would start with um, education <laughs> what uh, my um, my education i have done i am actually by training by qualification uh, his, um, an international historian I have studied in Strasbourg like many Luxembourgers do, and I have followed uh, in Trinity College Dublin, where I have uh, where I did my master thesis in, in international relations. I have done a second qualification in environmental economics at the SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, and I have recently also accomplished a, a diploma at Stockholm Environmental University, for which is called, it's a championship in the biosphere. It's actually under Professor Johan Wokström, which is the professor of the Institute, the Stockholm Resilience Center. So there was a training, and I um, accomplished that as well for saying that Actually, I have a, a double qualification and I have worked for 20 years in uh, the Luxembourg Development Corporation. After having worked, my first job was actually at the uh, permanent representation of Luxembourg to the EU in Brussels. And um, more recently, after 20 years in Development Corporation for Luxembourg, I have worked for the Ministry of Sustainable Development and Infrastructures. For the Minister François Bausch, who called me to ask whether... I could um, reinforce his department for designing a strategy how Luxembourg can develop from the territorial perspective 
from now to 2050. This is what is called in the jargon uh, PDAT, Programme Directeur Aménagement du Territoire. So it's the long-term spatial development plan for Luxembourg. So I was called by Minister Bausch to do that. And this is what I have done during two years for um, <laughs> ending up now um, working for the Ministry of Economy uh, under Minister Fayo where I'm in charge of um, conceiving uh, a, a new unit, which is called Luxembourg Strategy, and which also has as a mandate to develop long-term perspectives and long-term pathways and trajectories for the development of the Luxembourg economy. Your areas of expertise are very specialised, as you just explained, um, your career path so far. And what motivated you to choose this particular career path and also those studies that you did um, over the years? Difficult question, I'd say. I, I don't know, being from Luxembourg, I, I'd say I am a, a typical offspring of Luxembourg. I had one grandparent comes from a farm. The other grandparent uh, was a miner and, and uh, an owner of a quarry. Then my parents or my father was in services, as it, as it often happens in, in, in Luxembourg. And I am in, in, in services as well, but I have um, maintained a close relationship, I would say, to, to the natural offbringing because we, we were on farms as children and my, my grandparents, but the, the, the both grandfathers were hunters. My father is a hunter, so uncles are hunters and... Yes, I, I fell into 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 that uh, nature preservation um, longing. I always had that, and then I always had that longing also to. Um, I have a natural curiosity. I always wanted to combine things and understand things and think in systems and uh, think think outside of silos. So that was that was also a very deep um, motivation of 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 mine. This is. Uh, Yes, I have a very high intellectual curiosity and I like to understand things. So, yes, this this were my motivations. I studied history out of interest and um I I have also I always have um been very interested in geography and in traveling. I did like everybody at that age when when you are young. I I I I did a world trip and uh, I I went on the Trans-Siberian when I was I took the Trans-Siberian railway from St. Petersburg to Beijing when I was 19. So, yeah, this this um this this interest in discovering new new perspectives and new cultures and and bringing it all together, that, that was all, always a great interest of mine. This is also why I was never bored when I was uh, working in development cooperation, because it, it gives you this opportunity to not only visit countries as a tourist, but work with the people there. And I, I, I spent five years working, uh, living and working in, in Niger the poorest country uh, on earth. And I have intensively traveled in all Western Africa, traveled and work in Western Africa and in, in uh, Vietnam and Laos. So I, I, I consider that was very, very enriching, especially from the small country I'm coming from. And in the context of our overall uh, discussions, how would you explain urban and territorial planning to our listeners? 
Yes, that's that's now a, a new a new area I had discovered myself two years ago because I was more into renewable energies and and climate projects, uh, Vietnam and Capo Verde. I was into green procurement. I so um, and uh, all land reclaimed projects that generate carbon credits. So I changed I I, I changed uh, it all together when I was um, asked by Minister Bausch to come and join him, and I um, discovered something I had actually seen. In my studies, because in my history studies there was a, a strong component on, on on geography, but I I had no special experience working in the uh, in the special planning uh, area, so I had to discover myself. Um, I have to say first, maybe for for listeners, uh, because this is what I discovered also uh, three years back that that the the notion of um, urban or territorial planning it depends very much on on. There are different schools of going about it. Um, aménagement du territoire, like you say, say in French, is hardly ever translated into into English because uh, the 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 implementation um, it's actually translated by spatial planning, and and the French notion of this is broader. And then uh, um, there is also um, uh, a great difference whether you just talk about the implementation of planning or planning as such. And um, what you can say historically about uh, territorial development or territorial planning is that it is a new discipline which has actually been structured and professionalized and also taught in univer at universities after the Second World War uh, in the 60s, 70s. But as an activity, it's something that humans always did, at least since we have discovered agriculture and since we have stopped uh, hunting, gathering, we have, been, we have been land clearing. This is what we have always done for our security and our comfort. And then when we were able to master seed collection and improvement of seed varieties and we have been clearing land, so that we can stock uh, foods and that we don't have to move around with the weather and with the seasons as we did as hunter-gatherers. Hunter so it's something humans have always done. It's only, it's only that now, after the Second World War, the whole planning, territorial, special planning, has, be, has, has um, taken on a new direction because... We have urbanized, we concentrate in spots, we develop, we have um, specialized land, we have dedicated land to being forests. In the Middle Ages, all Europe was forests. This has been cleared and the agricultural land has been freed. Now more and more space is being made available for urban development and infrastructures. And we are now in our human trajectory on this planet, we are now in, a, in an epoch which is called the Anthropocene, where humans have such a strong influence on the planet that they actually design a, a geological epoch and that they actually hold the keys to how nature is developing. Some um, authors call this that we have entered the technosphere and that we are an infrastructure species because um, uh, we, the technosphere we have built with concrete and uh, wood and uh, glass and steel, that technosphere now weights more than all uh, life on Earth, and this is this is a, this is what um, defines the new epoch, which is the Anthropocene we are in. So based on what you just said, so I think it's, it's become a much more specialized, much broader uh, topic and an area of, of expertise to, uh, you know, 
creating more and more opportunities, obviously, in the in the future. And as such, uh, it also sounds like you know you, there's there's much more research being done in that field. And, and in your case, I know you've been writing numerous papers, especially about Luxembourg, on how um, you know urban and territorial planning uh, should be adapted uh, to to meet like a sustainability agenda in the coming years, and if not um, decades. And and I know um, you've recently published this book of yours. I mean, it's a French title, but I'm going to still say it in, in English. So it's Lux. Luxembourg in, in 2050, which I think it's is following another version of yours that uh, that was called uh, Luxembourg in 2020 that you published a bit more than a, a decade ago now. So my my question to you, Pascal, is obviously within 10 years your view must have changed. When you wrote the first paper, so in Luxembourg in 2020, what was your vision of Luxembourg in your area of expertise? And based on the recent paper, has it changed ever since? Yes, I've been writing um, and made, making radio shows ever since because, uh, yes, I, I, I can't stop myself from thinking. And so I would, I, I, I love to share that. And I also, yes, I, I, I think it's when you have new ideas and when you, when you have pulled together so many strings. And in my latest book, I have tried to pull together strings land-based. So I'm, I'm starting from the territory. I would also like to enter into into the public debates with these ideas. I mean, that's the reason why you why you write a book. You don't want a book uh, to read yourself uh, what what you think about things, but you really would like to kick something off and enter into the public debate and make make ideas tr- uh, change. And my my objective was always to contribute to make people see that the window of opportunities is closing rapidly and make people see the seriousness of the crisis we are in and that the, the, the and i'm not only talking about the climate crisis i am it's for me it cannot stand alone it's a crisis that has absolutely and always to be combined with the resources uh, crisis and with the social crisis, um, which which um, is in, inevitable if you are if you expect raising prices for material shortages and raising energy prices because fossil fuel, uh, I mean fossil fuels, you can say that it's 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 a plague, but in the end you have to recognize that it brought us a lot of prosperity, a lot of health, and a lot of comfort at a very very cheap price because it's so it's such an energy intensive material it has it, humankind without uh, fossil fuels the the life expectancy would would drop by 30 years like it was before we so intensively depended on fossil fuels so it um, that era is coming to a close and I, I i i still believe as i thought back in 2010 when i published luxembourg in 2020 that the seriousness and the depth and the magnitude of the crisis that is ahead of us is not understood or maybe it is understood but it is more paralyzing than pu- pushing people to action so I would like, in my modest possibilities, like to contribute to that uh, to that debate and to making us ready for and making <laughs> trying to make uh, out of these crises opportunities. And um, yes, I have to say, in in the paper I have written in 2010 and the book I have written now in 2020, uh, <laughs> I cannot report a very positive um, uh, evolution. I cannot report that many things have um, have been put in place. For instance, in 2010, I was advocating that we should develop 
uh, renewable energy is much faster, that we should uh, um, divide our thinking uh, into what is vital for an economy and a society and what is maybe less important. I made it in a, in a humoristic way. It was actually meant to be a funny story. I say that our credit card should be replaced by a carbon credit card where we would have a quota uh, of 20 tons per year and everybody is free to do with the 20 tons what he or she likes, but that every year those 20 tons, the credit would go down to 20 so that we would reach neutrality by two tons in 2050. And that if you uh, say, I'm not taking the plane three times a year, all the savings you have, you can put on your uh, CO2 <laughs> credit card and what you don't, what the access you have, you can trade among uh, other Luxembourgers saying, yeah, you traveled a lot. I didn't travel uh, much. So I have credits I can sell you that you would have like a stock exchange among Luxembourgers so that we would collectively get there to reduce our carbon footprint, etc. So it was in a, yeah, it was like, a, yeah, I, I wanted to um, instill people to get into the, uh, enter the game. The carbon footprint of Luxembourg residents has been reduced. We are not, when we were steel producers, we had a carbon footprint of 60 tons per capita. We were then down by 25 under the Kyoto Protocol and now under the Paris Agreement. And as of today, we have uh, 17 tons per resident of carbon greenhouse gas emissions. When we look back at the paper you wrote and with the recent climate disasters, whatever you want to call it. Is it fair to say that also the Luxembourgish government uh, in previous years uh, and the people itself have considerably failed to take any actions and we are only to blame ourselves for what we, in the position we are in at the moment? Well, I think we are wasting our time if we are entering into a blame game because that it, it, it's not helpful. And then I have to say, having worked for 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 four ministers over the last uh, four years that I wouldn't like to be in, in, in their position because it's really, 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 it's, it's mind-blowing what, what has to be done and what is possible to be done because it's like I always say, we are in an emergency, but we have to take time to to implement uh, a different trajectory. You cannot you cannot say from from today to tomorrow, nobody will drive his or her car anymore because uh, cars are by definition, be they electric or thermally uh, driven, they are full of material and full of energy and full of water and even full of, they have a land footprint. The car production has a land footprint because somewhere materials have to be mined to produce it, somewhere a factory, a factory has to be built to produce it. So we cannot say you leave your car and from tomorrow on it's everybody on the train because this is also why it is so interesting to uh, see um, the climate and resources emergency under the perspective of the territory because you then see that everything is slow. I mean, Changing your infrastructures, if you invest in infrastructures, they will be there at least for 30 years. So if you want to change the direction, it is a very slow area where you, until you are there, that you can be more um, uh, lower carbon. I give the examples of uh, new streets if or, or new buildings. If you decide to build them now and if they are built, if they are 
for instance, not necessary or built too big or built in the wrong plot, then you have you are stuck with that uh, solution for the next 30 years. So this is what is called stranded assets. But then again, are the technologies and is the knowledge there to already know now how, how to build differently? For instance, we have no, we have no cement. We, we are stuck with four materials which are all high carbon intensive and this is glass, aluminium, steel and cement. So how from today to tomorrow substitute them for something different, knowing that our wood in our forest is not the magnitude, the quantity is just not there to switch it all over. Actually talking about uh, topics that are not easy or a, a subject that is not easy, but uh, still we have to fact uh, or to face fact, so to speak, because um, there's a very, very um, burning question for me that I that I meant to ask you, um, because we know in, in this case, you know, Luxembourg's population is uh, still one of the smallest in, in comparison, you know, given also given the size of the territory, but projections tell us that uh, the, the total population of Luxembourg is expected to reach a million inhabitants uh, within a few years' time. But at the same time, you know, um, to, to talk more about current topics that can, that can actually you know, like trigger some form of questions, you know, with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, more people have thought about, you know, the, the need for space, you know, the, you know being, being trapped at home with kids and, and family and not having enough space to, to do more things at their leisure. So there's, there's many factors coming in and, and we know that people want to move out to, to bigger spaces, to more greener spaces and leave denser urban areas and certainly been the case here in London where Thierry and I uh, live currently. So um, I'm referring back to your book, um, Pascal, where you say that, uh, as we were saying just a minute ago, that um, um, the Luxembourg Luxembourg governments and, and, and the way things have been going on in terms of urban planning. So we've not factored in structural problems that uh, that we're facing today where we need to become more more conscious of how we make use of construction and green space. So um, having that in mind and, and with um, changing lifestyles, mostly triggered by the pandemic, we've got limited space, limited resources and, and more challenges to face. So in your opinion, how would you take this particular point, those particular points, how would you look at them and turn them into a an opportunity essentially? Yeah, that's the one billion dollar question. <laughs> How to turn all this <laughs> in the in opportunities? I mean, first of all, I don't know for your for your for your UK listeners. I, I imagine for big countries, it's 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 uh, quite difficult to imagine how small Luxembourg can be. I mean, we t- we are two thousand five hundred eighty six square kilometers. Half of half of the land uh, is is agricultural land. A third is forestry, and another th- well, not another f- a third. I, I mean, we have in uh, when it comes to land consumption, we are one of the highest consumer of land. Fourteen percent of the Luxembourg territory is built up. There is only Malta and the Netherlands uh, ahead of us. Malta, for obvious reasons, I mean, it's 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 a walk in the sea. And the Netherlands uh, is is very densely populated, but the Netherlands also have small houses and have a large population. Luxembourg has many, many records. For instance, the highest uh, floor area per per capita. We live in very, very big houses. Uh, The the, the comparison is always uh, a garage in Luxembourg is a house in the Netherlands. In the floor area we have, we are also the country that dedicates most build-up area to cars because a household in general has two to three cars. There is a garage, there is the pathway for the car to go into the garage, there is parking lots in, in cities. 
the parking lots in cities have the new norm for the parking lots is now to make parking spots bigger because we have so many zoof <laughs> the, 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 these four wheel bigger cars which have which weigh double the former um, lighter cars and smaller cars so in a country that knows such an acute scarcity of land in Luxembourg the way we treat our land is just uh, not sustainable I would say because uh, we, we are building up too fast and also we have um, we claim to have the luxury of saying as you say in your question I have worked hard I have a right I am entitled to having my house uh, fully detached in a green spot out in nature with no nuisances and this is this is this is actually a dream many many households have and then there is two problems one is that the housing prices in luxembourg are so high that this is an inaccessible dream for uh, an ever larger part of society and the other um, constraint is an environmental and material one creates huge congestions and it uh, consumes too much land. So spatial development policy in Luxembourg is to build denser cities. And that also implies building higher. But this is a culture we just don't have. People are mostly opposed to this as they are opposed uh, of having uh, wind generators close to, to where they live. So we have to work on our values and culture as well as working on, on uh, the physical and material resources constraints. On all these elements that you just mentioned, what's the one element of urban infrastructure that is the most overlooked in, in the context of environmental planning? Because you're saying, you know, they need to build the houses maybe at other places, but that will mean that you will have a segregation of those that are still living in their big houses with big garden, big entrances, tree cars, and those more densely populated uh, locations with more high rises. I mean, there will be a, a situation, them and us kind of scenario. So that, that will bring a whole other problem in, in the future. And what would be your recommendation then to overall change this and, and exploit it to, to its full potential? And also about the storage. Obviously, the more solar wind electricity you produce, it has to be stored somewhere. So maybe less farmland, less agriculture. Would that be a solution? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's hard choices. It's really, really hard choices. Uh, knowing also that all uh, all this has to be done in a, in a more energy efficient way than before. And that public budgets are drained because we will come to a point where these, uh, they call it natural disasters. For me, it's man-made disasters uh, in natural ecosystems. So all this has to be financed. It has to be built back. There will come a point where the damages will be uninsurable and where insurance companies will say, so that's it for us. The price is just too high. The government has to step in and, and, and co-finance the, the rebuilding. In, in, in bad economic terms, you would say a destruction is very good because if we rebuild, that's fueling the economy and, 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 and that is creating GDP. But that is an economy that, that produces undesirable goods and, and, and services. What, it is, what is desirable is putting people, um, having your population safe and protected and, and having the basic uh, services, which is an uninterrupted electricity, uninterrupted water supply and, and, and shelter and uninterrupted food supply. So 
But to, to come back to your question, which was actually a double question, <laughs> I think Luxembourg is so small that these existential uh, infrastructures cannot just be planned in Luxembourg alone. We are a founding member of the European Union and we have always conceived ourselves as one member of that, uh, of that community and we also a driving force in what we call here the greater region. So that is uh, our neighboring countries, part of our neighboring countries, those with, uh, with whom we have borders, which is uh, Wallonia, the Grand Est, uh, Rheinland-Pfalz and Saarland. So with these together, we, we might be able to find solutions when it comes to managing water uh, according to the, the hydrological and geological basins and not according to borders. That is, for instance, one, one solution would we have massive, massively in the greater region. So there is a lot that can be done in the greater region, which would be for the benefit of, of every member of that greater region. For instance, in logistics, how can that be more optimized in a resources scarcity framework we are in? I think storage will become a big thing in the future. Normally in economics, your costs are lower when you, when you can avoid storage. But I think in the future we will each country and each community will have to store basic supplies, be it spare parts, be it generators, be it docks of fossil fuels for the generator, be it batteries, be it medical materials, be it masks, uh, etc., be it seeds for replanting uh, harvests you have lost because of extreme weather events, etc. So how to find place for that storage and how to make it at the lowest economic cost because we cannot we are not in a scenario where we can just pay for everything pay our way out of this this is not possible it needs to have an economic cost society can support I had a very um based on all, on all the things you've just said now and 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 inevitably this is the kind of questions that, that I've been asking myself uh, for quite a while now but the combination of scarce resources having abundance energy at, at a lower price and so forth and with human nature being as it is sort of you know being in a accumulation mode wanting more space more more comfort you know it, there's there's no it, it doesn't sound like human nature can constrain it or restrain itself for the benefit of nature or you know to, to let nature actually do its job over the long term and, and reestablish sort of the all the ecosystems that are involved so let me ask you a very controversial question do, do you think that population growth or is population growth a, a problem for, for the world? And, and would, would do you think that at some point in time we should, um, we should intervene in that space? Accumulation mode, I, 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 I hear you and I, I agree with you. We are in an accumulation mode. Uh, I always break that down on a scale from accumulation to substitution to renouncing, giving up uh, uh, your appetite for things and it's definite that we are still on a trajectory of accumulation. We are not even substituting. When you look, for instance, at renewable energies, we pride ourselves that we, ourselves that we are developing so strongly renewable energies at a so low cost, they are competitive compared to fossils. But what we forget is the big picture. They have not displaced fossil energies. We are just fooling ourselves. We are producing renewable energies on top of fossil energies and both curves go up. So we are not in a substitution mode even there, and that's the public end that can do it. Uh, citizens alone can, can, cannot revolutionize, revolutionize this. 
But I do contradict you when you say accumulating for nature's sake. We shouldn't be doing it for nature's sake because nature doesn't need us. It's us that need nature. Nature is well off without humans, I would say. So the call is stop accumulating for your own sake. You know that is that is, and that also comes. I mean, from from resilience thinking perspective, the, my my teacher uh, Professor Johann Rockström uh, and Volker would say the, the the problem is that we don't see ourselves anymore as part of nature, and they claim that uh, it can only be done if the symbiosis between nature and humans is re-established. But that is another another discourse now about the demographics. I, 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 that is a very sensitive issue. I have been working in developing countries for twenty years, and it is sometimes lightly said, "Yeah, well, the problem is that a, a woman in Niger has too many children, and uh, yeah, that this is this is uh, this is not sustainable." But uh, that is an ethical question. How can you say to a, a woman in Niger she should stop having eight children if the footprint of these children? even if they are eight, is not even half of the footprint of one single Luxembourg child or European child. So it's an ethical question, the demography. Luxembourg is completely fueled by migration. Our, our fertility rate has, has, is, uh, we, are, we are not on, in the replacement mode of our population anymore. We are at 1.4 fertility rate and the replacement uh, rate is 2.1 children per woman. Luxembourg has a demography which is a, a demographic growth which is as strong as, for instance, Burkina or Niger because of migration. But that's not the whole picture of Europe. Poland and East European countries know the reverse. They lose population and it is a problem to provide services in in low density, huge areas. So, will demogra- I mean, Luxembourg is an exception. The way the, how strong our population growth and that we are heading for a, a country with one million inhabitants is an exception. It's not. It's not the general picture of of Europe. So policies have to be designed for the specific cases. And the speed about uh, of demographic growth in Luxembourg is actually a real headache because our infrastructure's procurement is lagging behind. And that is also pushing you to make choices which are not which might end up in stranded assets. You are building bypass roads more and more, although you know that roads are not the future and that we should all uh, hop on on public transport and not drive our own cars. So it's very difficult because the population is growing and they ask for for equal services and they have a right to this. It sounds like, you know, a lot of initiatives have to come from the policy uh, at the, well, have to be policy level driven so that, you know, we all, uh, it's not only like citizens themselves making efforts, but it's also giving them incentives to do it and have the support from, from their government officials. You know, we've seen sensitive pictures um, from the floods in, in, uh, in Germany, you know, the Benelux, of course. Uh, and, and of course, this, this just after a few weeks, seeing parts of uh, the US and Canada experiencing, uh, you know, extremely high uh, heat waves where you see people just, you know, hiding in storage places where, where you've got more air conditioning and so forth. So it's very, you know, very shocking uh, pictures. And, and hopefully people will pay attention to that, that it's, uh, we might say it's climate change driven. So we've got the, the Glasgow COP26 coming up in, uh, in November, where all the world leaders are going to get together and discuss more sensible ideas for the future in terms of addressing climate change. So my question to you is, 
what do you think is going to happen later this year? And also to compare what's happened uh, during those, you know, that, that breakthrough year in 2015, where, where the same sort of event happened in Paris, where agreements got put together. So what's your, what's your view of this? Where do you think things are going uh, later this year? Yes, I had the chance to be at two COP to see how this, this works. But I have to say, if you see the history of COPs, I mean, we are 26, that's 26 years of conference of parties uh, to the Paris Agreement and to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. When you plot these 26 conferences and when you plot on a graph as well the, sea, the greenhouse gas emissions, there has the line is just uninterruptedly going upwards. So none of any of the 26 COPs has done anything to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I am sorry to have to say that so bluntly. So I, uh, of course, I, I, I am myself, since I, I develop nationally determined contributions for countries, I have written the NDC, the Nationally Determined Contribution of Capo Verde to the Climate Change Convention. Every country has to do such an NDC, a nationally determined contribution to climate change mitigation and adaptation for the COP26 now in Glasgow. So I am an optimist uh, by, by will, but a pessimist by intellect. And I have to say, I, I still place uh, my optimism in, in I, I still trust my will that, that, that something will happen. But um, emissions are even on record after the COVID uh, year. I mean, you have to see COVID and the pandemic the whole world has been experiencing as a benchmark to evaluate what effort would it need to get emissions down. I mean, we don't want to be in a scenario where everybody has to has to be locked in in, its, in his or her house to get emissions down and stop all movement. This cannot be, this cannot be the future we, we want. But even when we did that, we only brought global emissions down by t some 3 to 4% and for a very, very short time. And if we want to achieve the Paris Agreement, which says that global warming should be well below 2 degrees Celsius, then we would need to do the same efforts COVID has done on the, on the emissions side without taking away uh, liberties to people. And we also need that to do that at in a least cost perspective. And this is why I hope very much that Glasgow will deliver on the financial promises made and will deliver on what they say they would develop concerning nature-based solutions. Because I strongly believe that if we place our faith in nature to repair the floods and to prevent the floods, that we can have it at a lower cost and with higher co-benefits in terms also, for instance, of biodiversity preservation. On that very sort of positive note and, and, you know, sending out a lot of hope, as you said, like you're very uh, optimistic by, uh, by nature. So I think uh, so, so am I. So I think uh, I very much look forward to, uh, I very much look forward to, uh, to follow up with you in, in the coming months, uh, especially I, I'll, I'll be very interested in talking about the new role that you've just, uh, just taken on at the, the Luxembourg strategy uh, in the Luxembourg strategy department and uh, discussing those, uh, those initiatives and, and all, the, all the plans you'll be coming up with. I suppose we'll take it from there. Suppose we should be ready by the end of the year with our with our Luxembourg strategy plan. So I, I would be able to to tell you more about it by then. And I am thanking you very much for this occasion to to wrap up on on the work I've been doing. Thanks for listening to the Luxembourg podcast. Please share this podcast with friends and family and leave us a review on iTunes. Also, please don't forget to visit our website luxembourg.com. And see you next time. Mm -hmm.